Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest this week is a celebrated historian and the award-winning author, co-author, and editor of more than 30 books. Most of these works focus on American presidents or people we know because of presidents. Professor Douglas Brinkley is the Catherine Sarnoff Brown Chair of Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He's a CNN presidential historian and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Professor Brinkley, welcome back to Words Matter. Well, thank you for having me. I love being with you guys. So last week, public impeachment hearings of President Trump began in the House Intelligence Committee, and pretty much everyone who does not appear on Fox News or the Rush Limbaugh show proclaimed that the proceedings were historic. And today we wanted to tap into your expertise here and discuss that history and how the current impeachment proceedings fit into it, rather than focusing on the minutiae and the day-to-day headlines, of which there are many so far. So before we jump into the history lesson, Professor Brinkley, we had you on the show back in the middle of August, and we reviewed the transcript and were surprised to find impeachment wasn't mentioned once. Neither was Russia or the Mueller investigation. We talked a lot about Donald Trump, but by mid-August, the threat of him being impeached seemed to have passed. And then, just five weeks later, Speaker Pelosi announced the start of the current impeachment inquiry. Are you surprised by the speed with which the process has moved? A little bit surprised, but uh, Nancy Pelosi had told her liberal Democratic base, the people on the left of the Democratic Party, that Donald Trump will self-impeach. She said that right after the Mueller report, that eventually he's going to do something that's so cut and dry, all you have to do is wait and hang. And that got her into, you know, some people on the left did not like that Pelosi didn't want to impeach during the Mueller investigation or at the time of the report. But alas, I think history will look well on Pelosi because it seems to me that she had no choice but to move forward with impeachment or the impeachment inquiry, given the fact that the evidence is just laying right there like low-hanging fruit. And so um, I find this as a time of, of civic learning, of reminding ourselves of how wise the founders were to find a way to rid or at least dent or punish a president that abuses power or does something to undermine our democratic principles. And Donald Trump has surely done that. So we're going to employ the history professor part of your resume here. Going back to the founders, there's a lot of discussion now that this is not a criminal trial impeachment. It's a political exercise. But I think there's a little bit of a difference between a political exercise and a partisan exercise. How do you interpret what the founders were getting at at the beginning? You can read, which a lot of people are commentating on, reading Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, but leave it to Ben Franklin to cut to the crux of it. And Franklin said, in other countries, you have mobs killing of a leader or you have an assassination. What we want in the United States is a way to not do that, but we have to pass some kind of punishment on what 
Franklin called obnoxious behavior. And they purposefully left it quite elastic, what is high crimes and misdemeanors. Yes, they mentioned bribery, and that's in the news a lot right now. But they knew each generation would have to confront an obnoxiousness and abuse of power on Franklin's kind of thinking that if you behave like a rented snake, you are going to have to get punished. And so he said it with humor, Franklin, because he knew enough about human nature. One could argue we've been lucky we haven't had to deal with impeachment that much in American history. But Donald Trump is not a, we're not talking about misdemeanors here with Trump. We're talking about true high crimes. The crux of what they were worried about, the founders was foreign interference in our democratic process. They were worried about England, France, and Spain, or people taking bribes or payoffs or um, doing what we're calling quid pro quo right now. But that is what they were most worried about. And uh, Donald Trump has fallen into what I would call a heavy-duty, impeachable character from a, a constitutional point of view. So I would tell people on both sides, right and left right now, just let Congress do their job and let the Senate have their trial. Donald Trump might be reelected, and he also might be thrown out, but he will always be wearing the eye in history. It will be something that will haunt him to a certain degree that he let things get this far down the line. So Congress has several functions that are harder than removing the president. Overriding a veto requires a two-thirds vote in both houses. Removing the president only involves a two-thirds vote in the Senate, not in the House. In the House, it's a simple majority to pass the articles of impeachment. Two questions. Given that, why haven't we removed presidents? And secondly, why did the founders think that only the death penalty was a crime here? You're either innocent or you get the death penalty and you're removed. We're talking about impeachment in the old days that you would get tar and feathered or you would be ousted. Uh, it's really a very civil process. It is true that in the, in the House, by it's a simple majority, one could say that has to, by nature, will be partisan um, to a certain degree. But once it gets to the Senate, the founders were believing anybody that rose as high as a senator had their own morality, their own sense of justice, their own sense of America, that they would never put party first, that they would always do what was right by the country. Our political party system of today wasn't developed till the 1800 presidential election. So when you're dealing with, say, 1780s, it was still an era of nobility and that you had to make sure that scoundrels got their due. But people mistake impeachment with removal. It isn't necessarily a mechanism for removal, uh, although it can be. It's a way to say we don't like a certain behavior and we're going to stigmatize you for it. So when Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton weren't removed, they were slapped. And Nixon probably would have could have had the whole book thrown at him if he didn't resign. I think Trump is by far the worst offender of any of these in our American history. But I don't think our founders would have been surprised that running dozens of presidents in a row that we were eventually going to get somebody who was susceptible to foreign interference and potentially bribery. Take us back to the 1860s and explain who Andrew Johnson was and why the heck did he get impeached? You know, we sometimes exaggerate the virtues of teams of rivals, um, particularly Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote that great book about Abraham Lincoln willing to put in people that didn't agree with them. But once Lincoln was gone and after the assassination and Andrew Johnson became president, 
the fix was in for him. He was a odd duck coming from Tennessee. He's now president when the Confederates had just lost. He was a bigot, a foul mouth, not very intellectual, not particularly likable character. And so it wasn't real hard to at least drum up the idea of getting rid of this guy to start the Civil War with the fresh face that might lead the United States back to its grandeur instead of Civil War. And so um, Johnson paid the cost for it. I will tell you, kind of in the theme where I've been talking about, so here he is, Congress goes to impeach him, the Senate trial, they don't, and he finishes out his term, but he did feel his honor had been attacked, so he goes back and runs for the U.S. Senate from Tennessee, end of his life, at a time of his death, he was a sitting U.S. senator. So while in Nixon... We talk about, oh, Nixon had to resign and flee to San Clemente. Well, he came back and became the squire of New Jersey, wrote best-selling books, was popular on television. President Clinton would consult with Nixon on foreign affairs. So this isn't a death sentence when we deal with impeachment on a president. It is simply a kind of way to say there are boundaries of the moment, and a president has far exceeded those in one realm or another. So if you closed your eyes and put yourself back into the middle of the 1860s and you looked at the composition of Congress, Johnson was a Democrat, and the Senate was 77% Republican, and the House was 86%. Hard to see how he survived. It's amazing that he survived. And it tells you that some of the language of impeachment was about how you brought disrespect to the presidency and Always keep in mind the reason impeachment there, yes, there's going to be tension between the executive and legislative branches. It is the job of Congress to try to, at times, hinder executive power. But what happened with Andrew Johnson is that impeachment scenario was all muddled and didn't pan out that well, that it ended up leading to congressional government in the late 19th century all the way up until Theodore Roosevelt, maybe William McKinley at the turn of the century and TR, meaning Congress got stronger and the president got weaker due to that whole impeachment mess. And in fact, Woodrow Wilson ended up writing a book about it called A Congressional Government, that our United States is now being run by Congress. We're not used to that. In recent years, presidency keeps gaining in power. But from time to time, Congress grabs the president by the scruff of the neck and makes them pay for high crimes and misdemeanors. So would that qualify, in your view, as a positive outcome? Look, if the fact that out of all the bloodshed in the American Civil War, the fact that a Tennessean was president and wasn't thrown out after the Civil War and was able to hang in there and then go back to the Senate tells you about a kind of decency in our democracy. But Johnson, not understanding his role in history under Johnson, that this was a moment he had to really find super leadership powers. And alas, he was kind of a third-rate, maybe second-rate politician, but he wasn't a leader for the ages, and he paid a cost for it, a cost that Ulysses S. Grant following him didn't because Grant was a folk hero and had been the leader of the Union Army. It was a calling for a time that it wasn't a great time for Southerners after the Civil War. And so after Andrew Johnson, you have all Republican presidents up until Woodrow Wilson who wins in 1912 because the Republican Party split in two. The only Democrat 
after Johnson was Grover Cleveland. And when you rattle them all off, Garfield and McKinley and Benjamin Harrison, these are all Republicans. And uh, in Ohio became the the key state uh, coming from the Deep South. Zachary Taylor, 1840s from, from the Deep South. We didn't have another Southern president, Johnson. And then you have... Um, Oh, Jimmy Carter winning. But the South got punished in general, and being from Tennessee meant you were going to get punished. Going back, Professor Brinkley, to your statement about high crimes and misdemeanors and how that phrase and how it's been interpreted is purposefully vague and somewhat malleable. But for Johnson, it was clearly in the misdemeanor category, I think. He was charged with violating the Tenure in Office Act in 1867, And that was passed specifically to kind of limit his power. And it was later repealed and declared unconstitutional, actually, by the Supreme Court. So what were the consequences of it being a misdemeanor? And I set that up to talk about what happens the next time we deal with impeachment. Well, it it made impeachment not in vogue. After Andrew Johnson, people kind of hung up the idea of impeachment. But it, it generated, as we all know, this wild enthusiasm when Nixon became president, because Nixon was out to destroy the press. He was breaking laws and norms left and right. And not only that, he leaves us the Nixon tapes, just evidence of obstruction of justice right in front of you. And so impeachment became a also a term for punishing Nixon for continuing the war in Vietnam, widening it into Cambodia and Laos. And it was, you know, let's get Tricky Dick out of the office and impeachment's the way to do it. I would say since Watergate and the impeachment proceedings with Nixon, it's now become a word that's resurrected constantly in American presidential politics. It was used a lot for Ronald Reagan during the Iran-Contra. Should he be impeached for this? George W. Bush, people were clamoring for impeachment due to the war in Iraq when there were no weapons of mass destruction, as he had claimed. And so the word impeachment gets bandied about in a partisan way uh, of getting rid of the president you don't like. However, with the case of Donald Trump, there may be a partisan element to it, but the evidence is so overwhelming that it's exactly what the founders were most concerned about, which is foreign interference and influence in American democratic political system. That's what happened in the Ukraine. And so that's why I say you can't get around it. Pelosi was in a position, I'm not sure it's good politics for the Democratic Party right now. Um, That's one reason they're moving quickly on it, perhaps not to have it bleed too much into 2020. But for Pelosi and the Democrats to have done nothing once we had the conversation of Trump and the Ukrainian president, that would have been malfeasance, delinquency of duty on the part of the Speaker of the House. Right. So I want to situate us squarely back in the 1970s and and talk about Nixon a little bit more here. Uh, This was over 100 years after the Johnson impeachment. And the circumstances for Nixon were really completely different. Nixon had just won re-election in 1972 by a huge margin, larger than almost anyone besides FDR and George Washington. But the charges against him, unlike Johnson, were clearly in the high crimes category and perhaps represented several different things to, to your point that you just made. Democrats at the time controlled both houses of 
Congress, and Nixon was really unpopular with the national press. So talk about Watergate in that context and why Nixon resigned even before the full House acted and what effect that had on future presidents and the power of the presidency. You know, I was able to do two books of Nixon transcripts from the so-called you know, White House tapes of Nixon. And there's one in December of 1972 where Nixon's saying, I'm one of the greatest presidents in American history. I just won the biggest landslide in 72, my breakthrough with China. I was the president for the man on the moon, and we've created – and he went on and on with all the things that he accomplished bragging to somebody in the Oval Office – That's December of 72. When you listen to the tapes in January of 73, he's paranoid all the time. He recognizes that what started with Woodward and Bernstein and moved on to Walter Cronkite and CBS and was painted as George McGovern, you know, trick to try to get Nixon. He gets worried early in 73, and you can hear on the tapes him getting more and more worried. Nixon, unlike Trump, Trump controls the Republican Party today. Nixon had not controlled the Republican Party of his day. Many were angry at him. Famously, Barry Goldwater will end up saying that Nixon lied to me face to face and I don't back a man who lies to me to my face. But there were also these people that were angry that Nixon created in the Republican Party that he created the Environmental Protection Agency and clean air and water. He was creating, buying into the regulatory culture of the New Deal and great society. And so many anti-regulatory Republicans really didn't like Dick Nixon. They thought all Nixon was worried about was being reelected. So he had not built his Republican base around him in the way that Donald Trump has. So it wasn't surprising in a more bipartisan era on Capitol Hill that a number of leading Republican senators said, to hell with Nixon, get rid of him. We'll have Gerald Ford as president. I'm not going down the drain of history as defending Nixon. And so it's a a big lesson today. You're right now, it looks like the vote in Congress, unless some minds are changed, can be pretty much Democrats versus Republicans, you're not getting the crossovers that happened in the Nixon years. Now, when it gets to the Senate trial, you might get three or four, but to get two-thirds of the Senate when the Republicans have the majority in the Senate, it's going to be a very tall order. But we'll wait and see what happens. So, Doug, I've been asked ad nauseum over the last uh, four or five weeks to compare the Clinton impeachment, given that I was there with Nixon, and I think there's not much to compare. But you've made an interesting point that there's really something more analogous to Nixon. Talk about that. Yeah, Ronald Reagan, um, when he had the Iran-Contra problem, Reagan's big thing was it involved a foreign government. It was arms for hostages in a triangular deal. Congress had said no to funding the Nicaraguan Contras. And the Sandinistas were taking over pro-communist government in Nicaragua. So when Congress said, we are not going to fund the Contras, the right-wing group that the Republicans liked, Reagan looked for a way to circumvent the funding. 
And they ended up doing it for arms to Iran, for the release of hostages, to then get money to Nicaragua. So it's, again, dealing with foreign influence. And that's what the founders were deeply, deeply worried about. Bribery, you could probably bust somebody or country could survive. But if a foreign country started influencing the U.S. government, our republic was kind of doomed. So Reagan had came close to impeachable offenses. What worked in his favor was that he had never told Oliver North and Admiral Poindexter and others exactly what to do. What it came out is Reagan said, I don't care if you boys end up in Leavenworth prison. I want the, the, uh, the Contras taken care of and I want the hostages out. And there was just enough plausible deniability that Reagan escaped the hook. And he also did an interesting word job going directly to the American public saying, well, I now know that maybe I did, but I didn't know that I did. And uh, he got away with it. He confronted it in a way that you don't see Donald Trump doing, meaning he apologized for his administration. And Trump instead is kind of doubling and tripling down. Say what you want about Richard Nixon. At least it was about domestic politics, bugging of the Watergate and the DNC. Horrible. But it was within our country. What Trump, like Reagan and Iran-Contra, were talking about interfering in American foreign policy and how money is being appropriated by taxpayers and encouraging this sort of shadow federal government in such a, a brazen way. So as much as I'd like to gloss over and pretend the Clinton impeachment didn't happen, let's we'll just do this really fast. Uh, <laughs> The Republicans in the House had been shut out of power for a long time, 40 years since you know they had the majority. What do you think their motivation was, particularly after the midterm elections, where the first time in 150 years, a president in the sixth year of his presidency picked up seats in Congress? It's a little bit of a longer conversation than we could probably have, but we too often maybe think about Democrats and Republicans, and it's about big business and money. And in the 1970s, conservatives felt that they had no friends in the mainstream media, that the universities were hotbeds of liberalism and leftism, that big business corporate Fortune 500 companies were being blamed for napalming and chemicals with Rachel Carson and the environment. And, and so there became this anti-regulatory movement, and they created institutions, things like the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, Federalist Society. There's like 50, 100 even of these kind of groups, all aimed at stopping progressivism. And here, lo and behold, Bill Clinton becomes president. And in 1993, what does he try to do but deal with health care and get government involvement in it? And so there became a big backlash, just like we saw Barack Obama have the backlash of a so-called Obamacare with Affordable Health Care Act. That gave birth to the Tea Party and created a kind of unity. Bill Clinton's progressivism in 1993 led to a, a feeling that we're going to get him because if Bill Clinton becomes a new Lyndon Johnson, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. And uh, alas, elections do matter. And that famous 1994 midterm election of Newt Gingrich, he was an unusual type of ideological character to suddenly be the leader of the Gingrich revolution. And um, they decided that we're going to find a way to rip 
Bill Clinton down, and they they uh, hunted for it, and they were able to find a way in. There's a a famous conversation between Newt Gingrich and Erskine Bowles, who was the president's third chief of staff. And Erskine had a good relationship with Newt, and he went up to the Hill one day to talk about the budget. And he took Newt aside and he said, you know, Congressman, why are you doing this? And Newt looked at him and he said, because we can. Exactly. And Nixon had a great line during the Watergate when he said, I don't blame the Democrats or and some Republicans, my enemies, because I gave them the sword. And if I would have had tapes of my opposition, I would have used them too. I mean, politics is a blood sport. It is rough and tumble. And, um, you know, Bill Clinton, uh, it's amazing how well you guys all survived all that, but he did. And it's to my point, though. I mean, Bill Clinton got out of the impeachment. He was more popular than ever. He could have won a third term most likely in 2000 if he could have. But does he pay a cost? Yes, because at times like this, people keep reminding you of it. And that has to be hurtful for the ex-president. But history looks to look at it in a different way. In in Bill Clinton's case, the balanced budget, the surplus, NATO enlargement, you know, on and on, everything you know of those years. And uh, we see him as a very successful president, so much so that his wife ran for president and won the popular vote, the first woman ever. Um, May have lost Donald Trump, but it tells you there's still a lot of gas in the Clinton's political tank for the former first lady and uh, to go that far. You talked earlier about impeachment after Johnson not being in vogue. Uh, Is one of the results of the Clinton impeachment, is impeachment's now in vogue? Yes. I think after Bill Clinton, it seemed to a lot of people that it was an overreach with impeachment in the 90s. And after that, after Bill Clinton, every president is basically being threatened with impeachment. Uh, what's stunning about our time is Donald Trump really has given them reason for it. Obama didn't have anything impeachable or, or George W. Bush or, you know, people may have – pundits may have thrown it out there. A couple of rogue politicians may have called for it looking for a headline. But it didn't have a real movement to it. But – Trump, I believe, misread the Mueller report. I read it and thought, wow, he is Houdini. He barely escaped by a iota. What a lucky guy. And that now he might be able to move with that behind him and have open runs. His philosophy, Donald Trump, is always to punch back. And he immediately took them. The day of the Mueller report, Trump is saying, now I'm going to go after my Democrats who were behind the Mueller report. And that's Nixonian. That sense, I'm going to destroy my enemy. Bill Clinton, in in my mind, it's amazing human being plus he's able to deal with people like Ken Starr and Newt Gingrich without hatred. I think his faith or really – I don't know how he does it, but anybody who goes after you the way they did to him, um, you would think you would have a disdain. But instead, he's learned how to process it. President Clinton would say, you can't seek forgiveness until you've forgiven others. Um, so I think it is a remarkable difference between President Nixon and we'll see with Donald Trump. So I, I want to talk about 
to your point, Professor Brinkley, what happened after the Mueller report and how Trump behaved and how that is being charged or presented in these impeachment proceedings and how you rank the charges against President Trump, the, the evidence so far in the context of the previous three impeachment inquiries. So we've seen former prosecutors and others saying, you know, we could look at bribery here. We could look at extortion here. I even heard someone reference the Hobbs Act, which has to do with affecting items and articles in commerce. And now after the public hearings and, and President Trump tweeted about the ambassador while she was sworn under oath and giving testimony, possibly obstruction of justice. How do you rate these charges in the context of the other three that we've talked about? I put what's going on with Donald Trump the worst, or or at least on with parity, uh, maybe with Nixon. But with Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, it really is kind of a misdemeanor behavior going on that was punished. And with the actual break-in and bugging of Watergate and the cover-up for it, quite elaborate. But I think what Trump's done and this idea of holding up taxpayer money unless a foreign government delivers dirt on his political opponent, it's unbelievably. It's beyond unseemly. It's anti-American at its core. I think some people don't think this is such a big moment because they're seeing the outcome. We are hyper-partisan. Republicans are going to stick with Trump. They're going to call it a witch hunt. And with the exception of maybe – and once it gets to the Senate, uh, there won't be more than one or two Republicans that want to impeach Donald Trump. And they, therefore, you know, come March or whatever, Donald Trump's still president. He's still the leader of the Republican Party and he's running for re-election with a really good chance of getting elected. And that makes some people feel, what well, well, this isn't that big right now. It's just like – a a time holder. I disagree with that. I think what Trump did is horrendous and that all hands on deck, that we have a president also um, intimidating witnesses. The amount of what he's doing to destabilize the United States at home and abroad right now due to his brand of populism is very concerning. But at least we know we have the impeachment inquiry to start putting the puzzle pieces together and having really a case built up against Donald Trump, not a legal case. It's a political one with legal potential legal ramifications down the line. Right. So there are basically three possible outcomes here, three ways that this story can go. The House could decide not to approve articles of impeachment. The House could bring articles of impeachment and the Senate could choose not to convict and remove. Or President Trump could be impeached, convicted and removed from office. So let's talk about all three. What are the consequences of the House failing to approve articles of impeachment, which seems unlikely day by day. It's it was almost impossible for me to imagine that outcome because of the testimonies we're hearing. And the evidence is so overwhelming that Congress will end up voting. And it'll happen sooner rather than later. And it's not going to be good news for Donald Trump. He is going to be an impeached president in history. When it gets to the Senate... It is a little bit dicier, but I have a feeling that many Republicans, and it's a talking point right now, is that 2020 is an election year and let the public decide in an election. That Nixon had already won an election, so it would have been a long 
you know, basically four years of him in power if they didn't pick up the impeachment drum, where with Donald Trump, there's a lot of Republicans that are saying, you know what, I don't like maybe what Trump did, but November is not that far away, and why don't we let the people decide how bad it is? And that's that's where I think it's going to fall, that Donald Trump uh, will only have a few Republican senators that turn on him or, you know, and then he will stay in office. But we don't know what evidence is going to pop up yet. I mean, we don't know what news coming. But for leading Republican senators to go from a removal to be become the butt of, of hatred by the Republican right of today, to be mocked by Sean Hannity and, and the Drudge Report on and on down, uh, seems unlikely. You'd have to be real profiles and courage. And people go back to the Nixon years when Howard Baker and all these Republicans. That's a different America. Yeah, I want to pick up on that. There's, there seems to be the bipartisanship of particularly the Senate Select Committee on Watergate has reached mythic proportion. But if you listen to people like Scott Armstrong, who's written about this, the Republicans weren't as bipartisan as they seemed. And they were giving reports to Nixon at the end of every day. There were some games that were being played. But in public, they stood up and acted the part of statesmen. What's changed? The politics haven't necessarily changed. I mean, Republicans still want to fight for their team, Democrats for their team. But there was a premium in 1973 in the summer on looking like you cared about the country in front of your party. That's, that seems to be gone. How did that happen? By 1980, you had the Reagan Revolution. And Reagan's big idea for conservatives to survive is a, a Republican doesn't criticize another Republican, that in unity, conservative movement has strength. And the fact that many people were so afraid of conservatives and then Reagan proved to be a durable two-term president that helped end the Cold War, Republicans tended to be more unified. But Barack Obama really kind of sealed it in. Because when he chose the first year to do that Affordable Health Care Act and bail out General Motors and, and all of that, Mitch McConnell said very clearly, we aren't going to do any business with this guy, period. And as much as we're talking about Trump, this is the age of the Mitch McConnell Republican Party. They have decided that it's just a game politics. In the end, it's all about money. And if Donald Trump is getting us Supreme Court justices federal judges and is able to deregulate things, open up coal mines in West Virginia or greenlight Keystone Pipeline through the heartland or drill the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, that this guy's worth us all sticking by him. Because if we lose Trump, the coalition will all break up. Trump brought new things to the Republican Party, like the, the Ross Perot 19 percenters, you know, Ross Pro in 1992 got 19% of the vote on anti-NAFTA. Trump scooped that up for them. Then the cult of personality of Donald Trump, his ability to communicate on Twitter, but also on his TV show. He's a powerful figure in American media landscape. So to lose Trump for those Republicans right now and to have Mike Pence come in on an election year they are just going to try to act like this is just a hit job by Democrats and uh, and get around this. Robert Frost, the great poet, said the only way out is through. The only way for the Republicans right now to get out of this for the next couple months, go through the process and just don't turn on the Donald. So let me finish with with one last question. 
You said we don't know all the facts. We, we, we seem to know a lot of them. Is there, in your view, anything that we could find out that would turn Republican senators against the president? I think if somebody like Bolton could come forward and say that the president told me in a one-to-one conversation that he wasn't going to release, we we are not releasing aid money till the uh, to the Ukraine um, until we get some benefit out of this, meaning dirt on the Bidens and um, Burisma. The one thing the Republicans have going for them is they're kind of painting that these are underlings, like three people down from the president. Remember in Watergate, you had John Dean from the White House counsel turning, and Bolton knows a lot. And Bolton would be, the, I think, the big catch. He's decided to let the courts decide whether he should come and give testimony. And I don't know how fast that will happen. Bolton comes and talks with the cameras on live. All bets are off where that conversation may head. It may be epic. Professor Brinkley, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Joe, last week we saw the start of the public hearings, and we saw three key witnesses. On Wednesday, we saw Ambassadors Taylor and Kent, and on Friday, we saw former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. What did you take from the first two hearings? I think that the single biggest thing was how the Republicans put up no defense on the facts. You know, each witness for the Democrats, I think, very strategically made a slightly different case. Kent talked about the importance of Ukraine and the importance of the relationship and the fact that it is critical to our relationship with our adversary, Russia. Taylor had the -the on-the-ground experience. He talked about going to the front lines and seeing Ukrainian soldiers fighting and dying while they were waiting for our aid. But I think the most compelling was Ambassador Yovanovitch because she basically was able to pull all of the strands of this somewhat tragic story together in a very personal way. The first thing she did was really reveal how long this had been going on. Republicans want you to think that this was just about a phone call. This was about a campaign run by Rudy Giuliani at the direction of the president to smear her and get her removed so that they could then bribe or extort the new uh, Ukrainian president to get the Ukrainians to investigate the Bidens. And she, in a very personal way, talked about after a 33-year career, she was told to get on the next plane because her security was at risk. And it was really powerful. And I think It's one of those moments that I think will seep into the public consciousness. In a private meeting this week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her top lieutenants were skeptical about the prospects of a dramatic shift in opinion, even as public impeachment hearings began. What do you think of that admission and what does it mean? Well, I think she's right. And I think it just depends on what your time frame is as far as what the impact will be. If you're looking at removing the president in the Senate, even if we get to 70% of the public wants him removed, that's not really the relevant number. The relevant number is the Republican base. And if they stick together 
and are not fractured somehow by the hearings or the Senate trial, then the Republicans have no incentive to remove him. In fact, they have a strong disincentive because if that base has become almost cult-like devoted to Trump, turns on Republicans, it's it's very simple. They will lose their elections. The Democrats will win back the Senate. uh, And that's just not something that Mitch McConnell is going to let happen. Uh, At least he's going to try to to keep it from happening. Now, the reason I said the time frame um, is removal is one thing. And we'll know about that early in 2020. The election in November is another thing. I I personally think that these hearings, um, and if the first week is any indication, uh, are devastating to Donald Trump. I think he is losing women in droves. I think he's losing independence, and he will be left with just his base when November comes around. So he won't – I don't think the Senate will remove him, but I think this is – it might be the deciding factor in the election in in November 2020. And switching gears a little bit here, last Friday we saw longtime Trump associate Roger Stone convicted for lying to Congress and witness tampering. He now faces up to 50 years in prison. Do you think that the Stone conviction plays any role whatsoever in the politics of impeachment, or do you think that'll stay uh, on a different course? I think it plays a a role in the public's perception of the president. One of the things that we we learned in the trial that we didn't really know before was the president was not honest in his answers to Mueller. Uh, He said he didn't know in advance of WikiLeaks, didn't know how uh, the information would be coming. And Steve Bannon exposed the lie. In, in his testimony, the president did know it was coming because Roger Stone told him it was coming. It's one of the strange things in the Trump era that he does so many things that are wrong. Uh, nothing seems that consequential. Uh, if this was another time, another president, this would be something that could sink a president, you know, lying under oath. Um, I, I've been through this a couple of times um, and had that debate over the last uh, 20 years. But I do think it's relevant, not necessarily in the impeachment hearings, because I think they're going to use the what prosecutors call thin to win strategy of just trying to get him on where they have an ironclad case rather than the kitchen sink strategy of throwing everything in. Um, So I don't know that it'll have an impact there, but it will have an impact in the election. It will have an impact in the debates if Trump decides to debate his Democratic opponent. Uh, So it is significant. One of the Republican talking points last week was the trio of ambassadors were providing hearsay testimony because they had no direct contact with Trump. As a lawyer, I'd like to point out there are 23 written exceptions to hearsay in the federal rules of evidence, but that's beside the point. This week, we'll see Ambassador Gordon Sondland, who did have direct contact with President Trump. What do you expect from the Sondland hearing? Before I get to Sondland, a, a drop a bomb on the Republican argument, and it's gaslighting at its best. They complain that they don't have firsthand information when they're keeping all of the people with firsthand information from testifying on the Hill. We could solve this problem 
if John Bolton found a way to sit in that witness chair or if Mick Mulvaney found a way to sit in there or Mike Pompeo. So it, it is not a serious argument. Um, and I think most of the legal experts would say the Democrats have enough, even if this was a criminal uh, situation, because as you said, there are lots of exceptions to uh, the hearsay argument. Sondland is the, the big wild card, and I think his testimony will be the most closely watched because he's told two different stories. He told a story where he tried to defend Trump in his original testimony, and then he told a second story when he was trying to avoid being charged with perjury. Uh, so my guess is he's going to look out for himself in this hearing. It, this might be an explosive day of testimony because he does have firsthand information. You know, we now know that he spoke to the president directly on this, and the president was pushing for the investigation so loudly that people in a restaurant heard it. It's, it's the one witness that I don't even think the members of the committee know what he's going to say, uh, which, you know, will increase the drama. But my guess is he will take care of himself first. And that's bad news for Trump. And finally, Joe, you had a piece in CNN where you talked about actually being a 13-year-old boy that got to watch the Nixon impeachment hearings and your experience over the course of now your third impeachment. And talk to us about that and seeing that full spectrum from then to now. Yeah, it's funny. I was sitting on a plane waiting to take off, and I had written a note to to CNN about, they had asked me about the differences between Clinton and the Trump impeachment, which has come up ad nauseum over, you know, the last uh, five weeks. The Clinton impeachment wasn't my first. Um, my dad was a special events producer for NBC News. Uh, he worked there for about 35 years. And one of the results of that was he was often gone for long periods of time doing political conventions, space launches, Olympics. Uh, he was in Saigon as Saigon was falling in Vietnam. Uh, so he, particularly political conventions, he tried to take some of the family or all of the family with him so that we could spend summers together or, or time together. And so in the summer of 1973, he was in Washington for most of the summer because of the Senate Select Committee uh, on Watergate, and they were doing live coverage every day. So he... Uh, arranged for me to come down to Washington so we could spend a couple of days together. As I look at it now, I think he hadn't fully thought through the childcare question because I was 13 years old and he didn't want to leave me in Washington uh, to my own devices. So he arranged for me to be able to stand in the back of the Watergate hearings. So over three days, I listened to John Ehrlichman testify from beginning to end. Uh, he testified for three days, answered the questions, and got to see it close up. You got to remember 13-year-olds have very short attention spans and aren't impressed by much, but I was riveted by this. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, and it I'm sure ha had an impact on what I eventually decided to do uh, for a living. Fast forward 25 years, and I'm in the middle of Bill Clinton's impeachment as his press secretary and had to deal with all of the issues there. And then, you know, there's the third now doing the Words Matter podcast and being on CNN as a commentator, watching what's going on at Trump. And I finished the piece by talking about what I think is the most important thing, which is getting to the truth and cooperating with the investigation. 
In the, the Nixon hearings, I watched John Ehrlichman, but all of them testified, Bob Haldeman, and John Dean with his famous, this is a cancer on America. And Richard Nixon testified. He didn't sit in a witness chair, but those tapes were his testimony. In 1998, through Ken Starr and his investigation, he got to the bottom of everything that happened. Bill Clinton not only testified before the grand jury, he gave blood because he had a subpoena that told him he had to do that. There was no stone left unturned. The real tragedy, I think, of the current impeachment process is I don't know that we're ever going to get the truth uh, or the full truth. I think we know that the president did something that's impeachable and he should be removed for his actions. But it may be historians going into the archives 30, 40 years from now, hopefully uh, Professor Brinkley will, will still be churning out great works of history before we know the depths of the crimes that were committed because the president won't testify. His chief of staff, who seemed to be the person who was directing a lot of this within the government, his national security advisor won't testify. Rudy Giuliani, who um, was the main player in Ukraine, won't testify. And I think it is uh, both a tragic thing and a dangerous thing that the Congress of the United States, an equal branch uh, of the government, issues valid subpoenas that are ignored uh, by the executive branch. My guess is this will all be settled in at the Supreme Court, uh, but sometime after the impeachment hearings are over, and depending on how the Supreme Court rules, we may never know. I'll finish with being struck by something um, Professor Brinkley said, which is one of the results of the Johnson impeachment was Congress re-emerging as a force in uh, running the government and sort of reducing executive power. So I think maybe there's some hope that in the aftermath of the Trump impeachment, this sort of 50 or 60 year movement of the executive branch expanding their powers, uh, maybe we'll see a pushback and the pendulum will swing back to where it should be, where we have a government of equal branches that share power. I've run out of words. <laughs> All right, Joe. Well, we appreciate your thoughts, both in your piece on CNN and here, and we'll see what happens next. Thanks, Katie. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 